and welcome to a Really Good Enough Parent podcast. My name is Christine Altwies. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and for 30 years I worked in intercountry and domestic adoption and family counseling. I'm the clinical director at Pona Roots Counseling Center, where our focus is on family systems, and I'm also a mother. I've created a Really Good Enough Parent podcast in response to what we see every day in our clinic. Childhood mental health issues are skyrocketing, and it doesn't have to be this way. I know that really good enough parenting is a skill we all possess. As a parent myself, I also understand how easy it is to lose sight and to mistrust or panic in the face of a melting down child or an impudent teen. The good news is that you have what it takes to help your child. Take a breath. See your child's innocence. You can do this. This podcast will feature some of the incredible people I've been lucky enough to meet in my life. No two have raised their children the same, and all have done a really good enough job. You'll hear new perspectives on how to handle tough situations. You'll be reminded of how your own parenting takes its cue from childhood. And hopefully, you'll feel invigorated to go do a really good enough job at this most rewarding of all human endeavors. A Really Good Enough Parent podcast is designed to be story time for adults. So thanks for being here with me today. I do appreciate you. Enjoy the show. In launching this podcast, one of my goals was to share with you all some of my amazing friends. The criteria for selecting friends to interview is fairly straightforward. First, they need to be willing to share their personal stories for this growing international audience. Thank you, Botswana, Belgium, and the Netherlands for being our first non-U.S. follower countries. Canada, what's up? Second, they need to have raised a child, worked with children, researched children, or have been a child. Third, if they were or are raising children, they need to have raised their children in a way which I don't find wildly objectionable. The wildly allows for the many friends with whom I may disagree slightly, but feel that they have something important to share. And finally, I love a good voice. If they have that, they are on my hit list. Which brings me to today's guest. When I first met Ernie many years ago, I just wanted to sit and listen to him talk for a few days straight. Not just to wallow in the deep, glorious resonance of his voice, not just because he's lived a life of thoughtful intelligence and hard work, community support and advocacy, but because he is just all that and a bag of chips. He makes you feel like you're the only thing that matters to him then and there, and that is a talent. In this episode, Ernie does not boast about his many accomplishments. In fact, he mentions none of them other than the accomplishment of pride he feels as a teacher and parent at having contributed to those lives. If you Google Ernie McRae, you will learn that he holds the points record in basketball for Arizona State University, that he is 85 years old, that he's an accomplished poet, writer of huge essays, and a former school teacher and principal. But if you talk to Ernie, you will learn that he is an eternal optimist, a believer in the goodness of people, and someone you could just sit and listen to all day long. And he's humble for days. With that, I give you my dear friend and a really good enough parent, Bernie McRae. Welcome back to another episode of a really good enough parent podcast. As usual, you know, I have handpicked the absolute most interesting people on the entire planet for you all to listen to, and today is no exception. I have known and loved Mr. Ernie McRae for many years. He came into uh, my life through an old family friend, and uh, I just really admire how he's, how he's lived his life. He's had um, a wide range of parenting experiences. He now um, is involved with his grandchildren, even. Um, so without further ado, Mr. Ernie McRae. Welcome, Ernie. Hey, thanks for having me. And great-grandchildren, and I have a great-great-grandchild recently. Holy cow. Okay, I didn't want to prematurely age you because I think of you as ageless. Um, 
but that's quite a few. Well, I started parenting at age 18. I wouldn't recommend that, but uh, uh, I did what I had to do. So tell me more about that. What can you share about your, your childhood, how you were raised up, and how you became a parent at 18? Well, I was probably next to your mom <laughs> and dad probably raised by, you know, the greatest parent in the world. I, I was raised by my mom. My dad was around, but he was on the periphery. Uh, I don't ever remember really living with him. But I grew up in a house where I was respected and I was listened to. And I didn't have to leave the room when adults came, unless, you know, they had something really adult they wanted to say. And my mother would say, maybe you ought to go play. But, you know, some people, I, I wasn't raised up with that children should be seen and, and not heard. We talked about everything. Um, and my mother would read to me and, and she would take me to things. Um, she grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, she was born in Mississippi and grew up in Pittsburgh and then went to school in Washington, D.C., uh, went to Howard. And then right after she graduated, she got TB. Yeah. And in those days, they would send people to the desert. So when she got to Tucson from being this big city girl, you know, and we're talking around, you know, 19, late 30s, she was going, where am I and what? <laughs> and how did I get here? But we, I, I grew up about 10 blocks from the University of Arizona. So I grew up on that campus. She was used to forums and concerts and, and uh, plays and, uh, and these type things. So uh, I grew up hearing ideas and listening to ideas. And Tucson used to have what they call the Sunday evening forum where they'd have the, you know, the world leaders and, and, and celebrities come speak. And she would take me to those. And I remember one time she said something to me. She said, I wish you wouldn't fidget so much when I take you to this. And I said, well, this, I don't know what they're talking about. You know, they're, you know, they're, I didn't think it was boring, but I just, I didn't think I understood. And she said something I remember, not that you remember everything your parents say, you know, but, but she said something to me. She said, you'd be surprised at how much you could understand if you just, sit quietly and listen. And somehow that uh, hit me uh, and, and, and I stuck with that and, um, you know, found that it was that it was true. And I came so in love with the Sunday evening forums that sometimes she would be tired from having worked all week and wouldn't want to go. And I would almost force her to go. But but so-and-so is there today, and I want to hear what he has to say. Oh, okay. And then we walked the 10 blocks up to the University of Arizona campus. And I was, uh, you know, black culture, there's a lot of ass-whooping. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't part of my experience. I maybe was hit out. I can remember two times, and maybe there was a third. And when I think about what I did in those times I probably would have hit me too <laughs> but my punishment was explaining wh why I did something and 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 I wasn't allowed to do that I don't know that that didn't go with my mom that I don't know she said oh no you got to talk to me I, I I'm really curious as to why you and your friends would go up to Mrs. Warner's house and you know how that woman loves you to death and just strip her trees of all the peaches and then just run along like you hadn't done anything. You need to explain to me, you know, why you did that. And I don't know what my explanation was, but I remember she said something like, just what I thought, you were just being stupid. You know, and then, then she launched into a, um, a lesson about how, you know, when there are people who care about you, you don't, you know, you, you, you act respectful towards them at all times. So. I had a lot of those kinds of uh, lessons. And if she wanted to buy a couch or something for the house, she would ask. I would be part of, you know, choosing it. And yeah. um, so I had a, I didn't realize until I became a teacher and a principal and all that, just how rich my upbringing was. You're just brought up, you know, you don't, 
question much unless you're in an abusive kind of situation, you know, but. Uh, right. So just to paint the, the picture to make sure everyone understands. So you were raised by a single mom, actually. Yeah. And you were raised by a woman who was highly educated and who valued education. Uh, yep. Had she been raised in a family of educated people as well? Or was that, was she the first one to sort of figure out that was relevant for her? Uh no, her dad and mom were super bright, but they weren't uh, formally uh, educated. Um, and, and just to, to switch a little bit, uh, college wasn't new to my family. My dad uh, went, he had a little college, and his dad was a college graduate and a, and a professor in, in Florida. Wow. Um, but, but, well, well, I had such a rich upbringing, like my father, my grandfather left a, a sharecropping plantation in Hawkinsville, I think that's the name of it, Georgia, uh, when he was about 14. Uh, it was similar to slavery, you know, because you owed your soul to the company store, as they said, you know, and you couldn't leave there until you squared away. And, and you didn't have much money. And when he was about 14, he uh, got in a fight with the foreman and he had to leave the plantation and he never saw his family ever again. And he made his way to uh, Gulfport, Mississippi. He was running from a lynch mob and just went on the gangplank and got on this ship and the ship took off. And then I kind of forget some of the stories, but he became a seaman. Um, for a lot of, of years. And then he met my grandmother, who I never met. Both of my grandmothers died before I was born. And they were, it was kind of like love at first sight mm -hmm. with them. And, uh, and she didn't want him. She said, I can't marry somebody who's going to be gone out to sea all the time. I mean, he literally traveled all around the world. And he said, I can't live in the South. So that's, that's what caused him to move to, uh, to Pennsylvania and and he said uh, he couldn't were, live in the south to sort of to restate the obvious because of the racial strife yeah he just hated the south and not all black people hated the south you know I mean it was kind of home but he didn't like anything of, of, about it um but I but but here's what and he moved in he moved to Tucson when I was about the third grade and talking about learning things um sometime i'm not a very hateful person but there were sometimes you know tucson had a jim crow situation but it wasn't like the deep south um i mean actually you could curse a white person out you know and not have to worry about being a lynchster or or you know it, it wasn't that extreme but there would be sometimes that i would be they would refuse service at this hamburger joint i would I worked since I was five years old. I used to help a family friend who had a shoe shine stand downtown Tucson, and he'd let me do things and fetch things for him and, and shine shoes some sometime. And I'd take that money, and you, you have such hope as a kid. And I'd go in the same cafe all the time, and they'd just send me out. They're pretty nice people. They'd just say, how many times do we have to tell you we can't serve you here? And sometimes I'd go home going, I hate white people. And, and that wasn't really true, but that's the way I was feeling in that sure. moment. Makes sense. And my grandfather would say something like, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, what about that guy at Cut Rates Drugstore? Every time you go up there, he'll give you extra ice cream and your root beer float. Did he treat you the way you were treated today? No. And that guy at Dairy Queen is always encouraging you to go to college and, and gives you a free Sunday every now and then. Does he treat you that way? And, and that woman at the library, you, you go in there and she raves about you and introduces you to people as, as her friend and brag about how much you read. Does she treat you the way you're treated today? I said, no. He said, then you had a problem with a white person, not white people. What a lesson. I kind of knew that naturally, but to hear that, you mm -hmm. know, it, and then he would tell me about how when he was running from Hawkinsville from the plantation, the plantation, uh, he would uh, 
you know, be in little towns and, and some some black people would help him sometime. And some were afraid because, you know, they were risking their lives helping some fugitive, as, as it were. And then he said, and these were his words, he said he was amazed. He said that there were many white people who helped him and would say, look, we don't have much. We'll just share it with little we've got and, and we'll look out and, and let you know when we think you can, you know, can take off for the rest of your journey. So, so I learned something about that. So if I was going to get into that being hateful towards white people, I had influence, um, not to, to be. And, um, so I, I, I learned a lot about race relations there and about, uh, how, if you just hate people in general, that's just not a good thing. And when Emmett Till, um, you know, when he uh, got killed down south, I, I remember that, that was one of the most jarring things in my life. Um, and I saw his mutilated body in Jet Magazine. I don't know if you're familiar with Jet I remember Jet, Jet right. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, I was, a, I was about his age. I was maybe around 15 or something like that. And I couldn't wait to get the, the uh, I think, Jet's Weekly you know, uh, to get the magazine. And they had the beauty of the week, you know, so I'm panting, I'm looking for the, <laughs> yeah, the beauty of the week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw Emmett Till's um, body and I just, there was a picture full page. And I remember, I, I really did get kind of hateful for about two or three days. I was just freaked out. I was just thinking, I that could have been, me. Um, and I remember I was being all huffy and puffy and feeling a bunch of hate. And I was uh, at a at a corner in downtown Tucson. And I'm stopped at a red light. And a woman, a white woman was standing in front of me. And I was just hating her up and down and all around. And then the light turned green. And she just walked away from me. And something in me clicked saying, you know, that that woman has done a thing to you, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't loud about it. I was just hating her quietly, you know. Sure. But I just, I just, I took that as, uh, I'm being kind of stupid here. So the know? lessons that your parents and grandparents imbued in you were pretty powerful. It'd be nice to think that if you meet everyone in the world with love, that what love would come back at you all the time, right? right. It sounds like that was the principle on which you were raised, like, you have to love until you've been given reason to believe you're not going to get that back. Um, That's right. And it's beautiful. Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't work out that way for many people, but I think there is something to that. I just, I would hate to give that as, you know, sort of a, an idea to the racist world that, Oh, that's all it takes is that, you know, all the people who are being uh, persecuted are just not meeting the world with enough love. But I do think there's something to that because knowing you and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because you are such a loving, gracious, intelligent man. It's hard to not feel that when you're in your presence. Um, So that must have been an important part of how you were raised up, that you were told, meet the world with love, you know, be intelligent, understand things, think things through, don't act rash, don't go off, don't fly off. Right. That's right. And it and it works. There's nothing more powerful than love. And and I chose a profession teaching uh, where you should be all about love because, you know, you're working with young minds and, and you can't you have to get rid of all your isms, you know, because everybody walks up the, the walkway into a school, you know, uh, Trumper type people or great people, people of all colors and, and you know, uh, pe- homosexual people. I mean, the whole, whole thing. So you have to get rid of that. And, and I chose a profession where you could just, you couldn't love enough. Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I don't know if you're interested in a story on how I got into teaching. I'm totally <laughs> interested in a story about how you got into teaching. Go for it. Um, after my first day of kindergarten, uh, 
for however a five-year-old can, you know, formulate an idea of what they want to do, I, I decided I want to be a teacher because I remember going to school. I was so excited because I could already read. I could read at age three, and, and I was just excited. This is going to be fun, and that was one of the most miserable days. <laughs> and I remember going home just thinking, oh, they – it, and it, it happened to be a Catholic school, and it had to be that Sister Mary Benedict, one of the most kick-ass people I've ever, uh-huh. ever <laughs> known. And I would just, you know, I just thought, God, they, that could have been so much more interesting. So I went all through school kind of evaluating the lessons that some teacher would use. I, I Afterwards, I just think, wow, if we'd done this, if we'd done that, that could have been out exciting lesson and stuff so when I got to college I didn't have to think twice about what I was going to do and and I chose PE as the teaching that I wanted to do because I just thought now here's a way you could work and help kids be fit and then you could also talk about the world with you know your outdoors and stuff but I never did teach PE as such I started off uh, teaching elementary school um, uh, sixth grade at a at a school in a in a naval housing area in the 60s so the vietnam war was going on and the assassinations and the motown and and all of that so i entered teaching at a real uh a rich time for learning uh and a lot of the staff and, and we were a good staff at this school but a lot of them wouldn't talk about the the war where most of our kids' parents were in Vietnam or off the coast of Vietnam. And I just say, how can you not talk about it? That's all they want to talk about. And we just tie that into our lessons and compare it with other wars and, and, and all these type things. And, um, and I remember when Kennedy was assassinated, uh, we heard about it right before recess. And I remember my first thought was, oh, real right. You know, president is shot. You know, as though a bullet can't go through there and and, and, and right. enter a president. He's impervious right. to bullets. Yeah. And then when we got back from recess, turned the radio on, the first words we heard was, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy is dead. And I remember uh, two or three kids kind of, almost screamed and and ran out of the classroom. We all sat there stunned. And then after we settled down, every hand in the classroom was up. And that was the first time I understood that just because you're a teacher doesn't make you the expert in the room. I had never experienced anything like that. And so we were experiencing it together. and, And some of the best writing I've ever gotten out of kids, we wrote poetry and and we talked about that assassination the whole year and and how we would make the world different and and these type things that that was my style of teaching talking about the the world i would sometime i would just during sharing time i would wait till the kids shared their thoughts about or their news and then i'd throw out my little thing and a lot of times that was to clarify things uh i remember i had one year I had a class and, you know, we talked about uh, Martin Luther King and Edgar, uh, Edgar, Red Grevers. Medgar Evers, yep. and a few people and Fannie Lou Hamer and, and the kids were saying, yeah, but Malcolm X is violent. And I said, okay, um, I might could argue with you, but your homework for tomorrow is a come back with some examples, talk to your parents or whatever, of how Malcolm X is violent. Then the next day they didn't have any hmm. examples. And then we had a couple of fighters in the room. Chip, I remember, was one of the kids. And I said, you're always getting in a fight on the playground. What is the fight about? What is because somebody hit me or they said something about my mother or something like that. I said, so you're just reacting to something. And I said, that's all Malcolm X was doing when he said, by any means necessary. You know, Martin Luther King might turn the other cheek. Malcolm was saying, you slap me, you're going to get slapped back. Mm-hmm. Different ways. I said, that doesn't necessarily make a person violent. You know, so that we get that little understanding. Um, 
and then then we had the rash of assassinations: Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm, as one, and uh, and Martin. Yeah, one of the things that I do appreciate about you, and I will put in the show notes some of your um, connect sort of, I guess, link to your blog or allow people to read some of your writing. Your poems are so beautiful. But you said something a while ago that I just want to touch on for a minute for parents listening. I think you said that when you were five and your first day of kindergarten, you were you were in there already sort of assessing the way you were being taught. And I think it's really important for parents to remember that even though a child is five and has very little autonomy or independence or ability to execute you know, their own uh, will in many ways, they have a lot of thoughts and they have a lot of mm-hmm. ideas and they are sitting there watching and taking in everything that's happening around them. And they have real critical thinking, five-year-old version of critical thinking, but it's already there. They don't miss much. And I think parents often forget that their children are little sponges. And I love that idea that from the age five, you started thinking, I can do this better. And that for the rest of your childhood, you were accumulating ideas and source material for how you would end up being such a great teacher. Great idea for people to remember, I think. And I've taught kids that are just incredible. I don't, I don't know where people ever get the idea that kids don't know anything. I mean, they, they, they observe, they're the, the most observant people on the planet. They're checking everything out. And something else I learned, um, because I, I'm from an activist family, my mother was, you know, involved in, in things around politics and social things and, and Tucson, um, Sister Mary Benedict, who I mentioned a while ago, she was the principal of the of the Blessed Martin de Porres, was named after a black saint. But she had us for some reason singing day after day. I dream, I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair, you know, and that's a, that's like the Star Spangled Banner. You have to be an opera singer to sing that. And and then what does a kid care about? I dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair, and one day. I just, I, I'd had enough of that. I said, why do we have to keep singing about Jeannie with the light brown hair? Why can't we sing songs that we know like Your Feet's Too Big or Caledonia? <laughs> oh, Sister Mary Benedict just jumped across tables and just whacked my knuckles and stuff. But, but what I learned was, you know, uh, from that day on, uh, we never sang I Dream of Jeannie again. Hello. Right. And and I registered that. That was just kind of the way my mind worked. I was just going, you got to take things on. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to sit down and just take stuff. You know, all that. <laughs> so can we talk about the role of athletics in your life as a teacher also? Because I get the sense that was a really big part of your coming up and how you view the world. Oh, yeah. And, well, sports helped me as a as a teacher, I I remember when um, I took my sixth graders out to PE one day, or maybe the probably the first week of school. You know, I'm a new teacher, and we were I had a, one group of kids was shooting baskets, and a kid missed, and I just instinctively jumped up, palmed the ball, and stuffed it behind me. And I don't think those kids have exhaled yet. I mean, they were just, <laughs> wow. The next day, it was all over the Paradise Hills neighborhood. There's a teacher at Perry Elementary who can dunk a ball. Yeah. And then we go out to PE, and I take a turn at bat and hit the ball over the, the, the bungalows right off the playground. And um, and they'd go, wow. And, and I call it the... the what did I, I had a name for it the, the, that had, the, if you can get them to say, wow, you know, you've got them. Yeah. And then I would write little ditties, little poems um, about, you know, each one of them, like kidding around. And um, I remember one kid who was just on my last nerve every day. And the kids liked coming, liked my classroom so much that they were never absent. I'm just, 
I wanted so much for him to just take a week off. <laughs> but one day I I wrote a little jingle about him, just kind of playful fun. I didn't want to, you know, humiliate him or anything. He hardly ever smiled. And there used to be a popular song then for, I think it was for uh, Rainbow Bread. It was sort of like a jingle, no holes in rainbow bread, hell the rainbow. No, oh no, and sunbeam bread. So I wrote this ditty about him. No, you know, there's holes in Jimmy's head. There's holes in Jimmy's head. And he smiled. And I'm not saying that turned him around, but it, it, he, uh, he had a lot of things going on in his life that I just found out about. Oh, God, I just mentioned him. He got in contact with me about two years ago. Holy cow. Because he'd been reading my blog and in all these years, and we talked, and he told me about those days. Because I reminded him, right? He said, do you remember me? I said, oh, do I remember you? <laughs> yes, I remember you. And then he said, well, let me tell you what that was all about. He was horribly abused. Of course, yeah. And when I look back on it, I could see it now, but I didn't know what his yeah. problem was. He would just scowl at me like he was going to... Kill. I yeah. didn't like walking by his desk. <laughs> he was just like, "Whoa!" I always was... tell my ch my own children. I tell them the kids at school who are the meanest, the bossiest, you know, the ones who lie, the ones who hit you, or the just you know the kids who you got to look out for. You got to always ask yourself what's going on for them at home, right? right. You always got to ask yourself what's really happening with that kid that they got to hurt other people. So with all that, your years of experience as a teacher, we haven't talked about your years of experience as a dad, granddad, great dad, great granddad, and great, great granddad. So what can you share with our listeners about things you learned as a dad, regrets you may have about how you parented this or that moment, things you felt you did really well? Um, what can you share about your parenting experience? Well, my parenting experience started with Lena, my high school sweetheart, saying I'm pregnant, and I, and and it was me. The expression on my face must have been, "How could that happen?" I don't think we knew how babies. <laughs> I don't Boy. know. It was just sort of like, uh, and I was just kind of blown away. Of course, I knew nothing about parenting, um, but I was up for it. I, you know, when Debbie, my oldest, was was born, I. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know what some people they get confused about parenting. They say they don't know anything about, well, who does? You just, I, I learned right away that that screaming at two and three in the morning, that that was something you were going to have to deal with, mm -hmm. you know, you get up and then, um, and then I kind of, with my kids, I did like my mother, I talked to them all the time, um, shared how I felt and want to know how they they felt about things and and I learned about how wonderful kids are because Debbie the first few years of her life before I moved to San Diego was spent in the neighborhood I grew up in and I would stroll her around the the block and she was pointing out stuff that I had <laughs> that I'd been around for 18 years or so and hadn't noticed what is that and I go oh that is, you know, I mean, she was just pointing things out, and I just um, just got a sense of how important this this job was, and and I was the one that did kind of the the getting up at, late at night because I was in school mm -hmm. at the University of Arizona. So when everybody else was down, that's when I could get in some studying, and I'd have the TV on in the background, and until the the I don't know if you remember if you were old enough. The 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 TV day would end with a test pattern. Yeah, and stars yeah, yes, usually by midnight, out. right? And the three channels would go away. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody yelled and screamed at one of my kids, because all three were born within the four years that uh, I was at the university, I would, and I was so tired. I slept through through college. I remember one time turning the TV off. Um, and and just went to sleep, bending over, <laughs> turning the TV off. I woke up. I'd probably been to sleep by 
two minutes with my hand still on the on the knob. But um, you somehow knew this was a job that you had to do. Like there was no <laughs> doubt you had to manage to get your education, to raise the kids, right? To study while doing that. There was just no question in your mind this was what you do. Yeah, and and I was married to a not a very good person and I'd known her. We grew up together, but I she showed things in our marriage that I had never seen. So part of that was I was at the lowest period of my life dealing with some shenanigans mm. she did involving other men and, and stuff. A long, long, long uh, story. Uh, as a matter of fact, I entertained for a brief moment offing her. And that's, you know, I'm just not, <laughs> I mean, you know, that that's that, that's not my kind of thinking, but I was so, I, did, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to change my circumstances, but, the, and, and it was a serious thought. I mean, I went, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's the ticket. And then at the same time, something clicked and said, you know that guy that you have a drink with at the bowling alley every now and then? You know, he's a lawyer. Why don't you go to him? And I took a retainer to him and, and, and got out of that. So I was in a lot of ways with a spouse, kind of a, a single parent. She didn't have, she didn't have parenting. She didn't have that maternal instinct mm -hmm. yeah. was missing. She came through late in her life. I, I, I'm proud of her. She was a, she was a great mother for them after they were grown. Uh, matter of fact, she, she had, had them over like every Sunday and she could cook mm -hmm. uh, for dinner and stuff. And, and I would go to some of those or go around Christmas, but I didn't like being around her that, that much, but it was good to see her, you know, blossom as a parent, but as a parent of little kids, uh, but to give you an idea of, of how she was without getting into any detail. Back in those days, it was hard for a man to get custody. Of I was just going to ask about the custody arrangement. Sounds like you raised up the the three and young I ones. I got them. I got them. Then yeah. she worked on them, and I just simply, I, I just told him, I said, I, I can't live like this. And your mom and I, they were pretty young. I said we have some kind of problems that I can't deal with. And I said, but I need to know, and I'll uh, honor your wishes. I need to know. Who do you, you want to live with me or with your mom? And they said, me. And so then I pursued things. Mm -hmm. And then uh, she worked on them and uh, just talked to them like, uh, you know, all the time about moving in with her and moving in. So they slowly moved in. But I kind of left that as their their choice. As one has to. That's That was yeah. the only thing you could do, as painful as that was. Oh, it was I remember crying uh, one morning. I, I was, uh, I was mad at Debbie, my oldest daughter, uh, because she, her, the school they went to was near the school where I went to, and we we would leave the house about the same time. and And I was running a little late, and their school started a little earlier than mine. I said, "Why are you still here? You've got to go to school." And she sheepishly said, "Well." Mom and I, she, she, we're going to court or something like that. You know, so oh, she, she spilled the beans. Yeah, she was messing with them. Mm -hmm. um, well, so those three, your youngest three, were the first three you had. And were there more after that? Uh, no, I had, with, with her, I had two girls and a boy, and then with Nancy, my wife who died just a few years ago, we had two girls. And right. A, so you raised up five children all together. Yeah. And what I loved about my youngest ones, I, I had always wanted to raise some kids from birth through college and all that, you know, uh, I was deprived of that the first time. And, uh, and that, that was, I had a wonderful woman. Um, I, I didn't mind coming home after school. <laughs> Makes a big Where, difference. Oh, with that first, oh, there were times I just, every time I just didn't want to go home. But I did something back then um, to, if it hadn't been for my sixth graders, I, I don't know what I would have done. Interesting. Because I'd come in with my head down sometimes. 
and and they kind of knew that I was having trouble with my marriage without knowing too much. So, so I can remember when it comes, oh, tough time with the old lady last night, huh, Mr. McCray? And then I say, yeah, you got. And then that would wake me up, you know. And then I say, okay, let's, you know, get going. I gotta uh, be the adult in this room. Time to yeah. put on my big boy pants, right? <laughs> Yeah. But, well, that yeah. what's interesting I find about all that is that um, you're you were so you were so interested in the children, both as a teacher and a parent. Um, I'm curious to know how what difference you see in your two youngest as opposed to your three older ones. And the reason I'm asking is because one thing that we know from studying um, childhood mental health is that kids who are raised in contentious domestic situations suffer not just the obvious mental health challenges, they have a higher representation with ADHD diagnoses, they have a higher, you know, long-term mental health challenge, uh, they have physical health problems often. Um, so I'm wondering if you saw in your, in your children any adverse effects from that um, first marriage versus your second situation. Yeah, there was when my oldest son, um, he he had problems and and he passed away just a, a few yeah. years ago. My old two oldest passed away, but he just never fully connected. He was he was the most harmed by uh, you know that whole situation, and he used he would just get in so much trouble in school. I don't like telephones today because I associated them with those calls I would get, mm -hmm. you know, around six o'clock. Hello, uh, hello, is this Mr. McCray? Yes. Mr. McCray, I hate to bother you. I know this is probably your separate time, but guy is in my third period class and then they run this thing down and, and I'd go up to the school and we sit down with the counselor or the principal or vice principal and we'd all come up with something we thought we could do to help him you know with his behavior and he wouldn't and he was the one who needed to commit to something you right. know and he yeah. would and he would never say well i'll do this or do that yeah i managed to get him graduated from high school i, I started a k-12 alternative school which was kind of loose in some ways i mean we had all kind of exciting learning things going on and uh and, and that worked for him. But even with that, it took me a while to to get him through. So, but the main thing, uh, and besides him, my, my, my two oldest daughters, they, they were pretty decent human beings, for lack of a better term. But I would have conversations with them, and they'd say something, and I could tell that this is something they got from their mom wow. because yep. it didn't happen. Well, like my oldest daughter Debbie, uh, she could. We were talking one time, and and she was saying something about uh, me hitting Mama, or something like that. And I said, I don't know where you ever got that at. She said, Well, I I think I saw you hit her one time. I said, No, and I said, Let me let me explain why. And this was the reason why, because there were times when I, you know, she would throw something or whatever that I could have, if I had just as much as shoved her or hit her, I wouldn't have been able to stop. Right. You know, it would have been all outrageous. And I was explaining that to her. I said, I said, I, I, I couldn't have, I, it, it, I was much stronger and stuff, you know, I said, but if I had hit her, that would have been, that would have been it. But, but somehow she had the belief that, you know, I had hit her mother. And then there'd be other t times that something would be said and I'd go, where in the world did they yeah. get that idea? Mm -hmm. Her mother was treacherous. I mean, she was... She was struggling with something back then. She had oh, she, demons, oh, right? Oh, yeah. she... Uh, I, I think there was, when I look back on it, uh, abuse in her house. She was one of 10 kids oh boy and mr douglas her dad he just ruled with an iron thumb he'd come home and people would shake yep. i grew up with all of them that you know the kids were friends of mine that i grew up with and they would he would they would just 
shake when he came home, but I don't know if he did anything as much as I didn't like him for his meanness. I don't think he did anything to her sexually, but she was one of the last of the Douglas family that I met. All her brothers and sisters were friends of mine and she didn't move to Tucson. She stayed with a grandmother or somebody until she was about uh, 13 or something like that. And I'm thinking that something in, she was, of course, you don't have to be pretty to attract, you know. Uh, but she was beautiful. Uh, she was, oh, she was yeah. stunning. Yeah. Well, the, I think the takeaway is that, you know, you can have one stand up, righteous, loving parent like yourself and you can have another parent who's struggling with some kind of demons that you know through no fault of her own or whatever the explanation is it's comfortable for you you know she was struggling and that struggle impacted the kids and you know the sad thing is that when you have two parents who you know are well one is doing their best and one is struggling the kids can suffer the oh, kids yeah. can suffer and um the, you know, the lesson for parents is whatever it takes, you cannot, you cannot be letting your kids see that struggle. You can't be letting your kids feel the impact. We, we were talking about my younger kids. They, I, I raised them a lot the way I was raised and Nancy. I mean, we talked to them and, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of rules necessary, but we, you know, we, um, they could they could talk to us about anything and, and I appreciate that um, they you know when and they had two parents that loved them dearly and they really loved me but my other kids did too but but I'm I'm much closer to them you know because I was around the whole time matter of fact oh here's parenting uh, when my twins were born I was just finished four years at this school I was talking about that I started, mm -hmm. uh, K-12 school. And after four years, I was just pushed. I mean, we had so much going on. We were all over the place. Um, and uh, and I was looking for some type of leave. And there was a sabbatical. But then the sabbatical, you had to travel or write or something. You know, I didn't mind writing. But I, I wanted just to not do anything. And for some reason that year, it must have been through some negotiations with the union, men could take parental leave. Lovely. And when they were born, they were born in February. And when school was out in June, I took three years off. And Nancy took three years off. I cashed in some inheritance from my mother from when she died. And talking about kicking parenting, off to be around your kids every day for the pretty much for the first three years of their life was uh, was something i think on the day that i if i had stayed with the district that i would have reported to school we were in san francisco with our twin girls um uh, you know visiting friends and th then eventually um Nancy wanted a son, but we didn't want to, you know, risk. I mean, you could get pregnant a thousand times and not have a, a son. So our youngest son is adopted. Right. We got him when he was about a month old. And, and you know the, the joys of adopting. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm so glad he's in our life. He's, he's one of the most incredible human beings I've ever known. So that's not blood there. I mean, he just... Right. He's a he's a doer and has more energy than any one human being should have. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the only one in the house that went to bed early. And when he'd go to bed, everybody in the house would go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God there's a little bit of peace and quiet now. Huh? Oh, wow. And he still has that energy now, which is great as an, an adult. And he was just a doer i don't know how many times he'd do something and we'd say something like didn't we tell him no <laughs> you know and and he'd do it in a way that wasn't completely defiant I, you know I, I can't think of an uh, an example it just if he wants to do something he just does it 
Ernie, I want to stop right there for a second, because this is such an important thing you're saying that, you know, you're talking about him as a doer, and that is such a generous and probably very fair description. And I'm now realizing that you're talking about otherwise what we would call a hyperactive child yeah. who's like causes trouble, right? Like in any other description, that's how he would be labeled. And the fact that your love and curiosity and acceptance of children, you know, extends into this description of your child, uh, I think is really important. And he probably felt that, and that probably enabled him to be a doer in the best possible way. Uh, yeah. because you weren't threatened and you didn't shame him and you encouraged him or at least tolerated it and didn't make him feel bad about it as often as possible. That's a lovely point. Well, the school tried to, you know, a couple of times they said they wanted to put him on, you know, some kind of... Ritalin or Adderall. Yeah, all that. And we just said, no, I just can't do that. I'm not going to drug my kid. And he wasn't that bad and school except for his energy you just say well you gotta you know uh and we'd suggest things that they could do um especially when the when the teaching lagged a little bit and stuff you know then he was <laughs> he was up and at it you know, uh, <laughs> you know? and he has he a lot of place. yeah he took the moment when it when it presented itself huh yeah oh man he and he he'll do things that I don't quite understand. Like he started a he he grad he's a social worker, but he's an entrepreneur type social worker. He started this thing called the Dojo Cafe. It was like a like a Volkswagen van food truck. Yeah, and he it had coffees and stuff, and then he had this property uh, on a on a corner of in in uh, city heights where there's little troubles in the neighborhood and so he created this place where people could could go and, and you know and be entertained and have forums uh the the the, the what is the the head city council person uh did her inauguration type address there stuff he it was just great then the pandemic kind of got into that and he just sold his his interest in that but when he was explaining it to me it i i couldn't form the picture in my mind and then when i saw it i said oh that's what he said it's going to be a van and they're going to serve coffee and welcome <laughs> you know, people oh, to come and sort out their issues right there yeah and i said that's exactly what he said i don't not that I didn't believe it, but I just, I mean, I would never think of filling a van with a bunch of coffee and stuff, you right. know, and, and serving it to people, but that's what he was doing. Like you said, he's an entrepreneur. Okay. So Ernie, I am curious about a couple of things. If you can sort of say a little bit more about raising your children. We haven't talked so much about race in parenting um, how you raise children to be loving and open in the face of the kinds of problems that may have been present in life for the kids. Um, can we talk about race a little bit? Yeah, with my kids and we're, you know, we're a mixed race family. Um, but our friends were a little of everybody, you know, gay, mm -hmm. straight, uh, not 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 many right wingers. I just don't hang with those people, you know. But uh, people that have their politics and social activities were like us. Um, so my kids were used to a little of everybody being around, so they didn't have that trouble with you know uh, like thoughts of trans people and all that. They don't. They're not the type of people that would freak out over the, those kinds of things. They practice what you practice, which is love and acceptance for all people. Yeah, because their their mother was just an amazing person too. I I was fortunate to have her in 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 my life, and then when she died, I just figured like, wow, uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I like being out there, you know, I might date somebody, but I didn't think I'd 
come up with somebody like Maria. You, you didn't know? think you'd hit another home run, huh? You Whoa. did. Uh, you I sure mean, did. Whoa. <laughs> Just like, and they were similar in, in many ways, both uh, go-getters. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Nancy did a lot around things going on in Central America and, you know, and the peace movement and um so that was just a kind of and i left uh this this is a semi-regret and only that i heard somebody that i cared about uh, my second wife um i didn't realize until after a while that that was kind of a rebound from my first you mean nancy you know, right yeah uh, well, well no nancy was my third wife Okay, so there was someone in between with whom you yeah. had no children. Yeah, and okay. and there's somebody I really cared about and loved, but um, then I met Nancy, and we started off playing tennis together and stuff. And I'd done that with women. I'm not a player, you know. So, you know, that you're was you're a kind player, of, but you're not a player, player. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, anybody who can play tennis or stuff like that with athletic, then hey, woman or uh, or man, I. I was all for it, but after a while, we started talking. I just, I, she would, you know, I'd say something about South Africa and apartheid, and she said, "Yeah, they need to free Mandela." And I was talking about what was going on with the, with the uh, Zapatistas and and different people, and she was all into that, and it just, and she was athletic, and. And it dawned on me, I had started off as a married at 18 and then a little bit in between. I had never really thought about what I really wanted in, in another person. You know, Cindy, my second wife, uh, I, I liked her because she was just nice. <laughs> you know, and I hadn't been around a nice person. So I had to leave her not it was uh i think about that every now and then I hurt somebody i really cared about but nancy was i had to i would have cheated myself to not take the opportunity to to be with her i, I wish i had met her before cindy but yeah everything happens for a reason some people believe it's hard you know when there's crisis and tragedy to accept that but i would like to absolve you of any guilt ernie because i think what you and nancy had was so beautiful and important and uh you created that amazing family that's now going out in the world and doing great things so um yeah i hope you get over that regret because you did something wonderful with nancy for sure yeah it's not a it's it's not a gnawing regret but it's just it's one of the I don't have a better term for it as one of the, cause I don't, I'm not a regretful kind of person. I figure you do things in life and you know, you, you did it. Don't do it again. You know, if it was something horrible. Yeah. So we're, we're almost out of time, which I regret. Um, but all good things must come to an end before we go. I just, I would like to hear a little more about, because you raised children and now you're really involved with your grandchildren, great grandchildren, not so much a great, great, great grandchild, but they're all there and you're, I'm sure, an influence. What are some of your thoughts about parenting today in this day and age? Because you are very connected to so many things. I feel like you are incredibly up to date with what's happening in the world. Uh, you're not, you're not in retirement in that way. You're still very connected. What are some of your concerns or thoughts for parents today? What would you share with parents today? Well, I think parents today have to be really observant because, you know, we got these cell phones and and kids have connection with the outside world, you know, and they can be in chat rooms and all that. And and I, I think parents today more than ever need to really keep a, ongoing real conversation with their kids you know to get an understanding of what's going on because i don't think you can say well you can't have these things you know when it's when it's all out there but uh, they have to learn how to uh, navigate things and it kind of bothers me that they kids now are growing up at a time when a lot in our society are uh are 
are opposed to truth. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it, 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 we become kind of a, in many ways a big segment of our population have just become silly ass people. You know, <laughs> uh, people that could support somebody like Trump. You know, they they could see anything of value in him or to think that he cares about them when he shows every just how non-caring he is you know uh so parents need we've all parents have always needed to be more observant and, and closer to kids but uh even more so now and uh expose their kids to to real things that that they don't need a <laughs> A phone in their hand to deal with, you know. Take them to things, uh, expose them to to ideas, um, and 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 parents nowadays, whether they're social or political activists, they need to be that now. Uh, kids need to see their parents going against a lot of the the woes that the world is is facing right now. They need to see somebody doing something about it and. And I have hope in them. It's always the young people who who, who take leadership in in the world, and and I'm I'm still around some young people, and there's some amazing people in this community who are doing things. Um, we've got to keep our eyes open and not buy into things just because it was said. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn that. You know, when I first got on Facebook, I wasn't used. To, I'm, I'm not in a world, you know, my friends and stuff where, where people are lying and, and, and exaggerating. And I see something on Facebook that's kind of when I go, wow, you know, really? And then I find out later that it, it wasn't true. It was and written by a bot to get you all stirred up. Yeah. You know, you go, what? So what's up here now? So now you got to check almost anything you hear. Yeah. And, and I do, I, I think that that is a, I think the fact that you are still so respectful of youth, that's been, you know, something that was modeled for you by your mother who respected you and you, when you were a teacher and as a father, you respect the youth. And I think the good, the good news for you is that that keeps you younger, that keeps you connected, that gives you, right, some good energy in your life. So you are one of the youngest old people I know. Because your youth is, you know, your youth is palpable. You are so interested in things and you're so, um, you know, curious still. You haven't turned into an old curmudgeon who just like says, you know, young people are stupid. You really are still curious and learning um, to this day. And that is such a great quality. Young people are my favorite people on the planet. I I enjoyed being one, you know, for one thing, being a child. And I just like children and when lyric and indigo and marley and 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 are around i just enjoy them i mean they wear me out sometime with their energy but that's just the way it is yeah it's supposed to wear you out exactly and you sleep better at night so yeah. before we before we end any final thoughts anything that you're currently obsessed with or that you're really passionate about a a book a poem a author a blog a movie NBA playoffs, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. My jock persona is, is really alive right now. You know, just had March madness and, 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 you know, the college ball and now the NBA and stuff. Oh, which I want to ask you is, uh, is Ava still playing uh, volleyball? Being influenced by her. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of all that, we managed to get through this entire interview without talking about all your great athletic accomplishments you are extremely modest among other things we haven't talked about your basketball career we haven't talked about the awards you were given in the field of education the awards you've been given by school systems for your leadership and your great stewardship of the young people but i will make sure to have um, a full biography with your permission in the show notes so people can read up on the true, truly great Ernie McRae. Um, your blog and everything else will be listed in there too so we can um, help people connect with your words of wisdom and your beautiful poems and whatever else you feel like sharing out there. So Ernie, this has been really special for me. I'm so grateful you were able to give me this time. 
Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be able to do it. I, you're just one of the most amazing human beings I know, and your family, you know, combined. It's um, you're you're people that I'm glad that I met during a lifetime because I could have easily not known any of you. Well, thank you. It is truly mutual. And we will talk soon. Give love to Maria. Thank you so much. I will do that. Okay. This has been another episode of A Really Good Enough Parent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd leave me a rating or subscribe. Subscribing helps boost my ratings, and rating me obviously helps boost my ratings, but only if you liked what you heard. But apropos that, whether or not you do or don't like this, I really do like feedback. So please drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know if there's someone you want me to interview or a certain topic you'd like me to tackle. You can find out more about a really good enough parent podcast on the Pono Roots website at ponoroots.org. That's P-O-N-O-R-O-O-T-S dot org. Pono Roots is a nonprofit program, and if you wish to support our work, donations are always welcome. And with that, I'll leave you a quote from Carl Jung and something that my children remind me of every day. You are what you do, not what you say you'll do. George loves Detroit.